right, well, today we are uh, continuing in our series where we've been looking uh, throughout the Bible in a year, and we're turning uh, our attention to kind of the second half of the Kings and the Chronicles period of the Bible, which involves prophets and psalms and and everything else like that, but if you look at your Bible and you look at Second Chronicles and Second Kings, as far as timeline goes, we're in that period towards the end of both of those books. So if you want to know the different kings that are involved and the prophecies that we're looking at, you'll generally be looking towards the end of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. One of the most prime, uh, primary, prominent, that's where I was looking for, one of those prominent prophets in that time period is the prophet Ezekiel, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, um, Ezekiel is a wildly entertaining book, I think. I think if you, if you just sat down and... I was thinking this past week, uh, you know, I've got... I try to make connections with people who don't have connections in the church. And one of the things that I feel like people who are not Christians and, and not believers don't understand is just how wildly entertaining the Bible is. It's just a, it's an amazing book with a lot of really interesting stories and, and, and personalities that emerge through the pages. And sometimes maybe that's a good way to encourage people into a conversation about faith is to say, hey, would you like to just join me in reading an entertaining book? And Ezekiel would certainly be one of those that you could say, let's look at this book and talk about some crazy stuff together. But get yourself a good commentary to go along with that. I have a, I have a great commentary uh, by a guy named Daniel Block, and I'll show you a little graphic that I found really helpful from that commentary. And, and that's been helpful as I look through Ezekiel. Um, I never, you know, if you, if you would ever go into a commentary, you're never going to find sections of me telling you something directly from the commentary. But the great thing about commentaries is they can help you when you have questions. They can guide your thinking. They can give you some structure as you look at a book. So some of you might have study Bibles. That's great. That's kind of a shortened, condensed version of a commentary. But if you're interested in getting into a specific book, find yourself a really good commentary from somebody who, you know, got their PhD in this and can guide you through it. Uh, as you look at, at Ezekiel, there are basically two sections to the book. There are chapters 1 through 33 and then chapters 34 through 48. Uh, the beginning section prophesies Judah, the southern nation of, of Israel's people, so northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. And so it prophesies the southern kingdom's collapse. And then the second half talks about the prophecies of Judah's restoration. I think one of the things that could be fair to say is that Ezekiel is the trauma prophet of Scripture. We definitely, I, I think the modern phrase would be that you hear somebody say, man, he's going through it. And that's a pretty good way to describe what's going on in Ezekiel. Man, he's going through it. Some of the things that happen to Ezekiel, uh, he is called to act out numerous prophecies, to show it in his life. So he is mute for years on end. He is, uh, he is called to lie uh, naked in the street for several weeks. Uh, he digs holes and walls where he lives in. His wife dies as an illustration of something God wants to show, and he's not allowed to mourn or say anything about it for years. Uh, he's called to eat food that he cooks over cow poop. Um, and he has numerous visions of strange creatures and weird events happening in the world. There's been a lot of 
You know, Sigmund Freud had some things to say about Ezekiel. So almost anybody has had some things to say about Ezekiel. But to me, what makes the most sense when I look at Ezekiel is that this is a prophet who is trying to deal with an incredibly traumatic event, which is the holy city of God, the place where God's presence lives, is going to be destroyed and then is destroyed. And the place where God always met with his people is no longer there. And Israel, and Ezekiel, and Israel, but Ezekiel is dealing with the trauma of that event. All the grief, the sadness, the despair, the disappointment, the anger over that. He's trying to make sense of it all. And if you've ever in your life dealt with a severely traumatic event, or you've been friends or family members with somebody who's experienced a traumatic event, you know that that's, I mean, that lots of crazy things can happen and, and all kinds of, of uh, uh, expressions of that come out. And we see that in Ezekiel. And in all of that, God speaks to Ezekiel and to his people. So I think one of the things that's generally encouraging about Ezekiel is that no matter what we go through in life, no matter what kind of trauma we've experienced and the way that it affects us, God will speak to us in the middle of that and he will reveal himself to us. And there will be beauty in that just as there's also craziness, there's also um, despair, there's also sometimes disgusting things that happen. That happens in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is trying to make sense out of a world where the worst possible thing can happen to the people who love God. He's trying to make sense of that. So one of the things that we'll try to do today is we're going to look at where Ezekiel starts to turn positive. I didn't want to spend a ton of time talking about the first 33 chapters. This beginning part is where I'm going to do that. Ezekiel is processing the trauma of what's going to happen. The northern kingdom has been taken over by Assyria, and he knows that Babylon's coming in to destroy Jerusalem. In chapter 33, verse 21, Ezekiel says, The city has fallen, and that's the traumatic event. Jerusalem falls. And in chapter 34, Ezekiel turns himself to say, well, what does it mean for all of us who love God and have a relationship with God? What does it mean for God's people? And I think what I'd be encouraged to say is, is that Ezekiel says, any experience of my life, from the good to the bad, but in Ezekiel's life, a lot of it is bad, is an opportunity for me to remember that I need to be rescued and God is there to do the rescuing. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. So this is after the city of Jerusalem has fallen, and the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel again in chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have, you have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but care for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock, so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. 
I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. All right, so just a couple things I want to point out for you here about this passage. 34 begins with this oracle, so to speak, God speaking against the shepherds of the people of Israel. Shepherds would include priests and kings, any rulers of his people. He speaks over, against them over what has happened to the people. The city of Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, the land of Judah, as well as the land of Israel, have fallen to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. And Ezekiel saying that the fault lies on the leaders of the people who put them in this place. And there's some beautiful ways that he describes this in this passage. A lot of Ezekiel is dealing with this graphic here that I pulled from Daniel Block's book. I really liked it. Uh, he is describing how Israel's house of pride is falling. And Israel's pride is built on God made a covenant with David. God resides. He lives in Jerusalem. We can go there and speak to him. God owns the land that we live on and he's given it to us. God has made a covenant with us. And Ezekiel talks about each one of these things to say, realize you can't take these things for granted. God isn't just saying you can have all this and there's no responsibilities for it. He wants to actually have a relationship with you. He's given all of these blessings to you, all these source and pillars of, your, of the house in which you and God live together. He's given them to you so that you can have a relationship with him. And when you don't have that relationship, he's going to take all that away until you realize what was really the foundation of the house. And it was relationship with the one true God who wants to know you and love you and impact your life. So all of these things that have built the house are going to be taken away from you. Uh, that was a great graphic to kind of illustrate that. So in this passage, he begins to say, well, okay, the house has been taken away. Who was the fault of that? And it comes down to these praying shepherds, these uh, shepherds who prey on the sheep, these predators that God is going to remove. Um, little Bible geek moment. <laughs> I thought that it was interesting this past week looking at this passage. Uh, as I was reading through Ezekiel, I said 34 really seems like where I should spend my time. And when you look at Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel clearly has the book of Jeremiah, or at least part of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23 in front of him open as he's writing this passage. Because there's a lot of back and forth between those passages. It's almost like Ezekiel is talking to Jeremiah as they both process what God is doing among his people. So I think that's really neat to see. He also brings in Leviticus chapter 26 liberally throughout this passage where God talks about the relationship that he wants to have with his people and how they're going to maintain that relationship. And he brings in those scriptures. So it's really neat to see how a prophet like Ezekiel already has some of the scriptures that we still have today, and that's where he's basing his experience of God, and he's making sense of his life. How much more should we make sense of our lives through the entirety of scripture that we've been given? As we experience anything in life, should we come back to God's word and say, who have you revealed yourself to be uh, in your written word, in this, this revelation of who Jesus is that makes sense of life and history and all that humanity experiences? How can I bring that into my experience of each life, uh, of my life of each day? Because that's what Ezekiel is doing. Um, so I really enjoyed seeing that, and it was an inspiration to me. God here in this passage says, My issue is with leaders who have no regard to the people they're supposed to care for. One uh, phrase that I really enjoyed here is that he says he has this image of the shepherds only care for themselves. They're stuffing themselves on cottage cheese. Who likes cottage cheese? Raise your hand if you like cottage cheese. Okay, that's more than I thought. I thought it would be like 50-50, but... Um, 
but yeah, I think cottage cheese is great. I'm with you guys. So, uh, and as, and uh, that's, you know, I packed on some cottage cheese weight, just like the pastors in this passage. Uh, they, they are eating cottage cheese, but the sheep aren't getting any. I want you guys to have as much cottage cheese as you want. If you want some, let me know. I'll bring some to your house. I don't want to be like these shepherds. Uh, so they, they, are, they are eating the cottage cheese. They're taking what the, the, shepherds, uh, the sheep should have for themselves, and they don't care about the flock. They don't strengthen the weak. They don't heal the sick. They don't bind up the injured. They haven't brought back the strays or searched for the lost. They've ruled them harshly and brutally. And then in verse 6, I really, I really was struck by this phrase. It says, My sheep wandered all over the mountains on an every high hill. And if, you, if you've read along with us, you know that in the Old Testament, whenever we talk about the high hills, that's where the people would go to worship false gods. Rather than going to Jerusalem, rather than going to the temple to meet together as a community, they went to their own high hills. They went and found a mountain and a, and a tree on a mountain. They built an altar there to worship a false god. And so here in this passage, God says they did that because they were lost sheep. It wasn't because necessarily they were evil people who just, man, I'm mad at them, send fire and brimstone on them. He said they were lost sheep. And the shepherds, the pastors, the priests, the, the kings of the people, they should have been there to say, you don't have to go to the high hills. Come to Jerusalem with us. Come and meet with the one true God. And together as a community, we'll hear what he wants us to hear. We'll follow where he wants us to go. We'll listen to him. We'll change our lives to be in obedience to what he wants for us. But instead, the lost sheep wander all over the hills. The passage reminded me a little bit of uh, a movie with Jeff Bridges, uh, who I think, I think is a great kind of country, uh, uh, I don't know, a cowboy type character whenever he plays as an actor. But there's a movie called Hell or High Water. And in that movie, uh, Jeff Bridges is, they're trying to figure out where these bank robbers are. And they're trying to stop them from preying on innocent people and, and robbing banks. So it maybe relates to this idea of predators. But what the, my favorite scene in the whole movie is Jeff Bridges and his partner are in a hotel room. They're watching TV, and his partner is watching a televangelist on the TV. And the televangelist is doing what televangelists do, trying to take money from the people that watch them, trying to convince them that they're a holy person of God when they actually really want their money. That's what they do. So he sees that his, his partner is really into it, and Jeff Bridges says, uh, that, that pat, you, you like this? You're into that kind of person? And his partner's like, yeah, he's a holy man of God. And Jeff Bridges says, he wouldn't know God if God crawled up his pant leg and bit him. He wouldn't know God. And I just, I love that, I love that, that quote in the movie because whoever wrote the movie or wrote that script is familiar with this idea from Ezekiel. That if you truly care about God's people, then your concern is that they would actually have a relationship with God and you're not profiting, benefiting uh, you know, getting yourself fat off of what it is that's happening to them that's hurting them, you're in the process with them so that they would be in right relationship with God, and God goes out after them here. Uh, he literally says here, I am against the pastors. I am against the shepherds. You know, this, this is one of those times I should read this passage and go gulp, you know, make sure he's not talking about me, to say, I want to be where it is that God wants me to be. I want to be faithful to him and not pray uh, on, uh, you know, the prophets, the benefits of being in a position of power. And we see that, you know, God is speaking here more than just about priests. He's talking about the leaders of his people, the kings who have failed the people. Over and over, they've taken what they want from the people, and nothing has happened to change what the circumstances are for those who are weak, who are sick, who are injured, who are lost, who are astray. Instead, they've been treated brutally. And God says, we're going to deal with that. 
there are a variety of ways that God shows this in Ezekiel. Sometimes it's through talking about an unfaithful spouse, uh, a very common metaphor in Ezekiel. But here in this passage, he talks about this idea of a flock that's gone astray, that's wandering around, whose shepherds do not care about that flock. They only want what's in it for themselves. So the first thing I want to see in this passage is to say, when I look at the world around me, when I see those that God has put under my influence, is my primary concern that they would be in right relationship with God and everything that I have and all that I do and the direction of my life is to bring that relationship about. Whatever sacrifices it takes for me, whatever I have to change to make that be the case, I'm going to do it. Now, I want to make this a little bit more generally applicable. I need to think about this as a pastor for sure. I need to make sure that I'm thinking about it that way. You need to think about that as a parent, as a grandparent, as a member of society. But we need to think about this as a church. You know, we can probably maintain this building and this organization pretty well for a long time. Um, I, I can't tell you exactly how long, you know, if we continue to bring in some, some young families who can continue to be part of the leadership of this church, it can go on for decades more. We can do this whole church thing pretty well. But if we are not being part of a movement to reach those who are injured, those who are lost, those who feel separated from relationship with God, those who don't know where to turn, if we are not part of that movement in this community, in Akron, in Cuyahoga Falls, in Stowe, God will come to us and say, I am against Cuyahoga Falls Church of the Nazarene. They can keep their doors open. They can keep a roof on the education wing. They can pay all their bills, but I'm against them because they're not into what I'm into. So that's something we need to pray about and hear from this passage God's saying, I want you to be in on this relationship that I want to have with the whole flock. Let's make it all part of what we're doing. All right, so let's keep reading the passage, verses 11 through 19. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after a sh shattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them at a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lay down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock flee, feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? So in this passage, God talks about restoring the poor sheep. He's removing the predators and he's restoring the poor sheep. Now, I don't know if, like me, you read the first part of this passage and you say, that sounds like someone I know. <laughs> Think about who it sounds like who says, I will bring them to good pasture. I myself will tend my sheep. I'll search for the lost and bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. That sounds like Jesus to me, right? <laughs> that sounds like Jesus who shows up and says, 
I'm going to heal the I'm going to heal the broken. I'm going to find those who are lost and astray. Everyone who feels separated, I'm going to go and find them. That sounds like Jesus who shows up as a shepherd and they say, Jesus, why aren't you in the temple every day preaching? Jesus, why aren't you hanging out with the religious people? Jesus, why are you spending your time with the tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners? And Jesus who says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That sounds like Jesus to me. That sounds like Jesus who looks for his poor sheep. I thought about another Jeff Bridges uh, movie in this moment, okay? I don't know why I have movies on the mind this week as I was looking at this passage. But my favorite Jeff Bridges movie is True Grit, and that's the modern version of True Grit. All apologies to John Wayne, but I do, I do love the modern version of True Grit. And in True Grit, there's this great scene at the end of the movie, sorry to spoil it for you, uh, where uh, Jeff Bridges is this, uh, you know, kind of almost semi-retired U.S. Marshal who's drunk half the time, who's trying to help uh, this young girl find her father's murderer. They're out in the wilderness trying to find her, and this young girl ends up falling into a pit trying to get her father's more. She falls into a pit, and in the pit, there's a ton of poisonous snakes. You've seen either movie. You know that happens. But in, in uh, this movie, you see Jeff Bridges descend down into the pit, and he begins shooting the snakes in the head to rescue the girl who's in the pit. And then immediately, he begins to suck the poison out of her arm where the snake bit her and then carries her to safety. Uh, and when I saw that movie, I said, that is actually the picture of the Good Shepherd. Because over the years, I've seen the paintings of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. The, uh, the tall, white European with fluffy blonde hair, uh, carrying a fluffy sheep and looking so serene and peaceful. But actually, the picture of the Good Shepherd that we're given here in this passage, and that you should think of whenever you hear the psalm of the Good Shepherd, whenever you hear about Jesus being a shepherd, is that when you're in the pit, surrounded by poisonous snakes, Jesus will repel down there and shoot the snakes in the head. And he'll grab you, and he'll take the poison that sin has put in your life. He'll take the poison that the predators have put in your life. He'll take the poison of the trauma of your life's experience, and he'll take that right out of you. He'll bring it right out of you. He'll rescue you from the pit and drag you back home. That's the shepherd that God says, I'm going to be. And do you notice over on this passage, God says three different times, he said, I myself will be the shepherd. I'm not sending a substitute. I myself am descending into the pit to rescue you from the poisonous snakes. What a beautiful and holy moment this is. We sang about the holy God earlier in that song. We sang about the holy God who shows up to rescue the lost, who shows up to rescue those who are lost in their own things. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that God has used um, evolution in our world as part of the creative process. I think we can all look around and see whatever level that, that, he, that, that creatures change as their environments change. And the idea of survival the fittest, like there's that, there's that, that elements that's true. For example, I think we're breeding a stronger squirrel in Cuyahoga Falls because my dog has killed about three dozen squirrels. Eventually, we're going to have super smart squirrels in Cuyahoga Falls because they're the only ones that's left when my dog kills several squirrels. Like, that's nature for you, right? Eventually, the only squirrels that are going to have squirrel babies are squirrels that are smart enough not to go in my yard, all right? Evolutionary-wise, that makes sense. That's kind of where we are. Uh, and it makes sense that God's put that into our world. But one of the things that strikes me about this passage and about what God is saying is that to work the process of death backwards, 
to reverse the trauma of human experience that occurs because of sin, because of mistakes that we make, God is actually choosing to reverse the evolutionary process. It's the weak and the injured that God has chosen. It's those who, if you were making a balance sheet, you'd say, man, they don't offer much to the equation that God has said, these are the ones I want. These are the ones I care about. These are part of my flock. So if I want to be faithful to this God who's descending into the pit of my life, whatever's put me there, whatever from my past has put me in the pit, whatever from my present is making those snakes hiss at me and try to kill me, when God descends into my pit to rescue me, he's going to bring me out to say, how can I find someone else who's in the pit? Someone else who nature has said this person shouldn't survive. Someone else who is not strong enough to be fit enough to be part of this uh, uh, image of what the world wants for us. They're the ones that God has chosen to be the chiefs in his kingdom. They're the ones that God has chosen as himself, as our shepherd, to bring out of the pit and to bring before us to lead us to relationship with him. Well, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that process in this world. All right, let's finish the chapter together. I don't want you to miss on the last part of this chapter. Uh, verses 20 through 31. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with your flank and your shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away. I will save my flock. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them, rid the land of savage beasts so that they will live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers and season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety. No one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops. They will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. In this passage, God revives the promise. There is a promise. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and we'll have a land where we're going to live together. And Ezekiel shows us here in this po uh, prophecy, in this, in this promise that God revives, that it's going to happen because God's going to send his Messiah. He's going to send his anointed one, the David that comes again to be the shepherd. When God says, I will be your shepherd, I will be there with you, then in this passage, the parallel is, he says, well, just when you understand, when I come and I'm your shepherd, it's because I'm sending you the second David. I'm sending you the second ruler who rules with a heart towards God and what it is that God wants for you. And we know as people who worship Jesus that that's Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd who comes from the line of David to love us and to bring us into relationship with him. There's all kinds of other crazy stuff that you can read about in Ezekiel. And in fact, if you go and search for it, you can find some pretty crazy books written about Gog and Magog telling you that it's Mikhail Gorbachev or today probably telling you that it's Vladimir Putin about Gog and Magog. And none of that is, <laughs> that is what Gog and Magog is about. You'll find chapters and chapters of God talking about this temple that he wants to build to replace the temple that was destroyed. 
couple chapters after this, you're going to find Ezekiel going out to a place where there's a valley full of the bones of human beings who have died in a war. And God speaks over that valley, and the bones come to life, and there's an army of, of people who aren't made for battle, but who are made to worship the Lord. And he says, this is the kind of army I want. And when we look at that temple that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel, uh, it's a temple that is never built, and I don't think was ever intended to be built, because the size of that temple is bigger than the size of the city of Jerusalem. And the altar of that temple, the altar is bigger than our church. The whole point behind that temple is that when I'm in relationship with this Messiah who's been sent, my entire life is worship. It's not going to be a, a situation where I have to go to a city to worship, but every part of my life is going to be an altar to worship this holy God. Every encounter I have with another human being is going to be an encounter for them to know and love the shepherd who will find them. That's uh, my last little image here was from the movie Taken where Liam Neeson says, I will find you and I'll use my special skills. God says the same thing in this passage, but his special skill is to heal the injured, to bind up the brokenhearted, to find the strays, to bring them to his kingdom, so that they can all worship him in every moment of their lives. The rescuing that we need is to know this God who loves us and knows us just as we are, knows the pits that we've fallen into, and wants to bring us into his presence. That over and over and over is the message of Ezekiel. And the trauma of our lives, and the trauma of our past, and the trauma of things that will happen in the future that we don't even know about, it is God who speaks to us and says, I will shepherd you through it. I will be there for you. You're my sheep. I love you, and I want to be in a relationship with you. I'll, I'll heal the injured. I'll carry them close to my heart. We talked about that last week, that beautiful image from Hosea of I'm going to pick up my child and, and, and hold them to my cheek. The boys are doing something that I really enjoy right now. Um, I do not enjoy when they don't listen to me, but I do enjoy when I ask them to do something. We, 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 have, we have worked hard with Elliot um, and, and encourage him with this idea of when you listen, you get a good listener hug. So we give him a little hug when he listens. And so he, he will ask and, and demand something. Sometimes it'll be the second or third time he's demanded something, and you're ready, you're like you're tensing yourself up, you're ready for the battle, right? Okay, it's my will versus his will. And then he will absolutely diffuse that tension by just saying, okay. Because then he knows he gets a listener hug when he says, okay. And, El and Augie's been doing it too. He'll just say, okay. And then, and then everything changes in that moment. The tension is diffused. We know that the will, our wills are in line. We're going to do something together. The rest of the day is going to be fun just because I said okay. The other funny thing they do is, I don't know where they pick this up, but when you ask them to do something, they will say, I obey, I obey. <laughs> and I, I have no idea. It has to be from a movie. Um, but it's funny, these little robots that they become. But they're robots that aren't robots. They're robots whose whose uh, creativity and imagination is engaged in obeying and following along with what I want. And that's what I see over and over in this passage, that God says, man, I've got amazing plans for your day. I've got something somewhere I want you to go, and I know you've been obstinate, stubborn children going your own way, wandering about in the hills, doing your own thing. Can you just say, okay? You know, can you just say, I obey. Can you, just, can you just listen? Can you just follow along? Because I've got somewhere I want to go, and you won't believe it when you get there. Let's pray. The beautiful thing about Ezekiel is that the entire thing is written in Babylon. Ezekiel and the exiles of Israel are in Babylon. And so it's to people who are lost, people who are separated, people who feel 
that they're at the lowest place they can go, that Ezekiel says, God's here, he's a shepherd, he's bringing you back. So no matter where you are, no matter what you feel, no matter what the people around you feel, where they are, God is calling them to a relationship with themselves. So let's go out in that knowledge today. Let it give us joy. Amen.